Thank you again, everybody, for joining. Uh, today we're going to be talking about how to grow your own cover crop seed legally. And you might wonder why I put that word in there, legally. Uh, partly is because there is some laws and there's some rules out there that we need to follow, and I want to explain that aspect as we go through. And the, the primary reason for doing this is with the advent of cover crops and the popularity of it and the need now for more cover crop seed production and also more farmers using cover crops and wanting to grow their own cover crop seed, there's some things to know about that. And there is, uh, I guess you'd say, kind of a behind-the-scenes effort from from the legal side to kind of know how to contain this, I'll call kind of the wild, wild west, if you will, almost, where, you know, what's the parameters on taking a variety and growing it for yourself and specific questions like that that are kind of coming to the forefront. So I don't want farmers to be caught in doing something that they didn't understand or didn't realize because of the part of the maturing of the cover crop industry is this whole thing of how does it fit? Because when you think of corn, soybeans, wheat, and the commodity price, commodity crops, those are pretty set in, in how they are oversight, how the oversight is. And, the ultimate goal from the legal side is to try and protect the buyer. And that's why we have to realize that there is a reason for rules and regulations. Uh, that being said, I think we all can appreciate the fact we don't like a lot of rules, but there needs to be some. And my motive for sharing this topic today is more about um, just just sheerly making sure we know what we're doing so so guys don't get burned, if you will. So a uh, little bit, I'm, I'm going to share too from my personal experience. I've been in the seed business. I started selling seeds back in the late 90s, actually, um, in a small way. But, and and then probably a lot of you were, got involved with a fairly uh, large uh, seed business over the years. So I do have some experience personally, not only just selling seed, but also growing seed and still do to this day. Matter of fact, I just want to show you uh, a picture here. This was, this picture here was taken uh, last week um, where um, I'm just kind of waiting for it to turn here um, where we were cleaning our uh, black oats that we were planting that I, that I grew for seed. A uh, black oat seems to be kind of an up-and-coming cover crop, at least in this area here. And it is a one of the cover crops that I can grow in my area. And most of you know I'm from southeastern Pennsylvania, which, contrary to um, a lot of areas, is more humid, more rainfall, and that does not accommodate good, healthy, quality seed. And I know we have several people on this in this group who actually grow cover crop seeds, and those people are from the west and more of a dry land area. And I will just mention, too, there is a reason why 90% or so of the grass seed in the country is grown in the Willamette Valley in Oregon. And that's primarily because they have the weather where they have good moisture in the winter and spring, but then the summer is virtually rain-free to be able to grow high-yielding, high-quality seeds, particularly the seeds that are small-seeded and, and a little harder to grow and that require specialty equipment. Uh, some combines, I have heard there's upwards to $30,000 spent just to make it a good uh, cover crop combine for some seeds like the radish or crimson clover or, or a, a lot of the particularly the smaller seeds. That being said, a cover crop like cereal rye can practically be grown anywhere. And, uh, yeah, the quality may not be as good in the east, but 
some of that's offset because uh, grains, like small grains, like oats, um, cereal rye, and triticale, for instance, are a high cost per acre to plant, or high seeding rate per acre. Hence, to transport cover crops that have higher seeding rates is uh, a little bit limiting because of the transportation costs. So then they, they tend to be able to be grown in other parts of the country. So enough said about that. Um, so uh, doing this right is, is, is important. There's two distinctive paths that I'm going to outline here when you're growing it, when you're growing cover crop seed. The first one is when you grow it for your own use. And the second one is you're going to grow to resell it. There is a huge difference. But before I kind of talk about each of those, you need to have an understanding here of the difference between a brand or a variety. And I'm just going to use my own uh, example here of this. Uh, I am uh, uh, have a licensed agreement for a brand of Harry Vetch that you probably don't hear about it yet, but it's uh, called Winter King. It's a winter hardy Harry Vetch. And I've licensed it to um, a company to, to be able to sell this, uh, Smith Seed Service. That is a brand. That name, Winter King, is a brand of Harry Vetch. So in a brand name, a name that's out there, it could be a variety or VNS. VNS stands for variety not stated. And you need to understand this background information so we can fully understand what we can and cannot do. So a brand can be anything that is any seed that's in that bag that matches the advertised uh, benefits or traits or whatever of that seed. A brand simply identifies this is what this seed is expecting to do. Uh, and a brand can vary slightly in genetics uh, from time to time um, simply because it's it's a uh, it, it has that little bit of wiggle room, I'll say. Now uh, the, the the letters there G H V dash one hundred is the actual variety name that I applied to the hairy vetch because it is a variety, and in order to get a variety designation, it needs to be selected by a certified plant breeder and awarded variety status by a USDA approval process. And uh, this isn't cheap. And um, in the cover crop realm, it can be twenty to $50,000. Could be done cheaper, maybe. Could cost more. So before one cent of seed is sold, you may have this kind of money invested into a variety. The reason a variety has benefits is it is a known selection of a species, and it is stable from year to year. And uh, that, so that's the benefits of having a variety. There are not many varieties of cover crops on the market. Most of them are brand names. So just keep that in mind. Also, I wanted to mention that a brand and a variety can be the same name. And sometimes they are. Uh, but in the same token, a variety could be sold under two or three or more brand names, depending on how it's licensed out and so forth. So this is just all important background information so that we understand what we can and cannot do with growing seed for our own use. So if we are, if I'm a farmer, or I'm talking to farmers about doing this, when we have a variety not stated, and this will be on the tag of the seed, it will be, it will be designated there, a VNS, and usually those letters are used, or it may say a variety name. A, ver a VNS is pretty straightforward. Uh, I put down no restrictions on growing it. I, I didn't know of any restrictions. So, and again, this is for your own use on your own farm. And that's what I want to be clear about it um, when you do that. Now, if, you're, if you have a seed that is a variety, 
to use on your own farm, there's a little bit of a gray area here, but this is the law in most states. If you buy a variety, you're not allowed to increase the amount of seed other than what you bought. In other words, um, or let me just finish reading that. You're not allowed to increase the amount of seed by subsequent harvest of that variety. Here's an example. Let's say year one. I purchase and plant 5,000 pounds of an oats variety, and I harvest that seed. Um, so I'm able to use that seed then to plant on my farm as a cover crop. Now, the next year, year two, I can't plant more than 5,000 pounds of that seed to harvest it for my own use. And you may have to think this through a little bit more, but the point of this rule is to try to give a little bit of a compromise to let farmers use a variety without paying royalties, which we're going to talk about here soon in reselling. But you can't, for instance, buy 5,000 pounds one year and plant that, and then next year, because you harvested, let's say, 50,000 pounds, that you use 50,000 pounds then to essentially 10 times your production to produce over, to use over your farm. So that might be a little confusing, but uh, I'm just going to leave it at that and move on when we talk about growing seed to sell. Growing seed to sell is a whole different animal. And I'm just going to go through some of the uh, things that you need to understand. And as I indicated at the beginning, there's a little bit more scrutiny now on this for a lot of reasons. And I think you'll understand as I go through this. So it's, it's, uh, it's, it's, it pays to know what you can and cannot do. The first thing that you need to do is assign a lot number to the, the seed. Um, typically lot numbers are, I think, up to a maximum of 20,000 pounds or something like that. And uh, the way I do it, to try to keep track of things, there's all different kinds of sophisticated ways to do lot numbers. Technically, you could probably just use one digit, like number one or something. But that gets lost in the context of everything. What I like to do is give some sort of a code or indication in the lot number of what year it was and then what field it was from, at least to do something like that. And that could all be you could even encode that. I know some people, will, they don't want the year to be listed as, or obvious on a lot number um, because sometimes seed can be five years old and still have a very high germ. But if you would know it was grown five years ago, you might not want to buy it. Uh, so I typically will assign a lot number that includes the year, the field it was from, and maybe something else. So something relatively simple to do that. And then you, you have to get the seed tested. And that's either with a state lab or there are some private independent labs that get seed tested. They're, they're certified to do that. And in the test, you need to do several things. You need to, they, and they know what to do. Sometimes you can be asked what you want. And depending on the nature of it, there's all different kinds of things, even to the, to seeds per pound and things like that. That's not necessarily required. What is required is germination, the percent of germination the purity of the seed, and noxious weeds, and prohibited weeds, and then listing the state where it was grown. Now, I could have added there, too, um, other crop. And if there is other crop, let's just say you grew hairy vetch, and there is a few seeds of cereal rye in it, that will need to be listed on the tag if that is if that if they find that in the sample. And there's tolerances for each of these. There's tolerances for noxious weeds. However, prohibited weeds, there's no tolerance for that. It's that's why it's prohibited. And this is again part of the reason why you want to, if you're buying from your neighbor or if you're selling to your neighbor, the reason there's a law about needing to get your seed tested is trying to limit noxious weed or prohibited weeds from spreading across the fields or across the countryside. So I think it's in our best interest as farmers 
I know if I would be buying seed from my neighbor, um, I wouldn't mind driving by his field or probably would before he harvests it to make sure there's no things like Canadian thistle or, um, you know, weeds in my area that can be problematic. Uh, we, we know Palmer pigweed and, and uh, that kind of stuff. If you see that kind of thing in a field, I don't think you want that cover crop seed. And this is why we get it tested. This is the reason behind getting it tested for this. So um, you can actually go on the Internet and find your state's uh, uh, parameters. Every state is some, somewhat different. They're generally the same, but as you can imagine, there's certain noxious weeds in some states that don't even exist in other states, so they don't list them. So uh, if you're really into this, I would really encourage you to look up your state's uh, weed or their, their, their seed uh, clarifications and classifications, what they have. There's actually a site, too, that you can go on and get every single state. And I'm just going to make a note here to jot that down and maybe post that on the Facebook group so um, so you can look and, and find out what your state is uh, in that and what, what each state requires. So, again, a little technical here, but you need to check with your state. The states have the power, the authority for monitoring uh, seeds. So once you get that test done, and you get it back, uh, depends on what species it is, something like a radish or a sun hemp that germinates quick, you may have a test result in seven days. Hairy vetch, on the other hand, it may take 14 days. It's a long, longer time to germinate. Then you will <clears throat> need to prepare a seed tag that goes on each bag or unit. So if you have 50-pound bags, it has to go on each bag, or if it's totes, it has to go on, on that tote. And um, so all the things I mentioned before need to be on that seed tag. Some states actually require that a lot number be stamped on the bag or units itself. And that's in case if the tag falls off, is ripped off, is torn off, or whatever, that there is some somewhat of traceability. Now, if, if you ever get inspected or if you ever have a complaint, if you feel like you got some seed from someone and it didn't germinate, you can get it tested and you can then go back. There's a certain amount of tolerances that it has to be within. Uh, I've actually heard some people, this is an exception, but just to show tell you what can go on, where they will typically actually put the germination, if the germination is really good, they may put it three or four points lower than what the test was just to be safe. And actually, in the state of Maryland, I heard this happen once where they did this, and I think the tolerance is like 3%, but the germination was actually 5% higher than the tag. And they actually went back to that grower, and I don't know if they gave him a warning or not, but the idea behind them pursuing that was that grower could have planted slightly less seed if he would have known it was germed higher. I think that's being a little bit nitpicky on that side of it, but I'm just telling you, that is an example that I heard about that happened. Um, some farmers who are really astute to this will actually get their seed tested when they get it. If they get it in plenty of time, they'll get it. And I'm I'm telling you, I've been on both sides of this. Uh, I've gotten seed already. I looked in the bag, and I thought, whoa, there's more stuff in there than I thought. And I've got it tested, and it was way off. Um either on inert or other crop or something, because as you can well imagine, usually you only need like 400 grams or a, or a pound or maybe two pounds of seed out of, let's say, 20,000 pounds. Well, that's certainly subject to a little bit of manipulation. Uh, but good seed companies are going to represent their stuff well, and they're going to want to get a representative sample of what they're selling. So there again, it comes back to the reputation of a seed company. Uh, now at the bottom here, uh, if you're going to be selling, if you be if you become a, a, I'll just say a dealer, you're selling across state lines, and this is a, I got to tell you, this is an opportunity now for some farmers to be able to, to kind of do a sideline job here of of growing cover crop seeds. There's no doubt about it; it's an opportunity. But if you're going to go across state lines, then you need to have, or I should say you should have, an AMS number. It's from the Agricultural Marketing Service, 
it's a four-digit number. It's free. It's simple to get. You can get it almost instantly. Apply online. And that's just another level of control for interstate commerce. So uh, that, I, I, I don't know for sure if that is absolutely required or not, but I know it's strongly encouraged if you're serious being in the cover crop business. So um, that's just, you know, some of the, some of the nuts and bolts uh, about all that. So now here's where it gets interesting if you're going to grow a variety. Uh, all, all what I said so far was background information on how to do it. But if we're growing a variety, this is a known variety. Um, let's just use my example here of the hairy vetch. Um, uh, I licensed that hairy vetch to uh, Smith Seed Service. And they are then have their whole dealer network that they're going to be selling it to. If you would want to grow hairy vetch yourself, you would be allowed to grow if you would buy 100 pounds of that seed, let's say, you would be allowed to plant that and keep that for yourself. But the next year, you could only technically, legally, grow 100 pounds again for yourself because that's what you originally bought. Uh, that's the way I understand that. Now, if you would say, hey, I'm in a good area. I'm out in the west. I have a good area, you know, dry area. I know how to grow vetch. I would like to grow seed. I would like to grow that variety, the, the variety uh, GHV-100, you would have to contact, first of all, you would go back through the channels, Smith Seed, and then they would contact me uh, as the owner. I own the variety. And uh, we would decide, do we want other people to grow this seed or not? And if the answer is yes, then we say, okay, you can grow this seed. We will give you what we call foundation stock, which is uh, you know, one generation up from what's out there that we use uh, out of breeding. And then you would have to pay a royalty that uh, would go to, eventually it would come back to me because you're paying for the rights to use that seed. And it would be a certain cents per bushel or a certain cents per pound, I mean, or whatever we agree to for that royalty. Then you can legally sell it as long as we have an agreement in place you can legally sell that then to the marketplace, like if you have your own business, as that brand name and as that variety. Uh, and that's, uh, again, there has to be a deal made. There has to be a contract made to do that. And I, I simply put down here, anything less than that is simply stealing from the owner of the variety. So, there is a little wiggle room in here. If you're a farmer and you want to grow a variety because you like it for whatever reason for your own self, there's there's a compromise that can be done. But if you take a known variety and grow it for yourself and, and put it out there, you're going to have to agree, have an agreement with the owner of that variety. And I think those of us who are farmers can understand that. Um, I guess to put it in another way, it's kind of like the music industry, and, you know, it's an area. This area is very difficult to um, to actually police because, you know, it's kind of hidden. Uh, you can't really see it. So in the music industry, you can, you know, buy off iTunes, and then you pay a buck or two for a song. Then you can give it to all your friends if you want to. And, yeah, that goes on uh, from time to time, I understand. But that's really not fair to the owner of that music. And the same thing here with the seeds. It's not really fair. Um, but this is, the, this is why then uh, people will put the time and effort, the thousands and thousands of dollars in developing a variety uh, so they can get a return from it. And I would say, too, just a point to consider, I'm speaking from the side of an owner here, if people are, quote, unquote, stealing my variety and growing it, and I'm not getting anything out of it, it disincentivizes me from getting new stuff out there and enhanced lines of different cover crops. So there got to be some understanding in all this. Um, but here's the thing. If you do the paperwork with a variety, if you do the testing with a VNS and everything else, that usually will give you a, a chance to uh, make up for any costs that are incurred in that because a variety usually commands a little higher price than similar type species that are, are similar type selections of a, spe of a given species. 
So it really is worth it. I think you can make more money as a, as a, as a seed grower than, uh, if you do it the right way. Um, and, and just before I, uh, summarize here, I know we have a, a couple seed growers, cover crop seed growers on our call, and I would like you guys to be ready to comment on what I said if there's any clarifications. So you guys get ready for that. Uh, but I would say this, that oats, cereal rye, triticale, those can be grown in large areas uh, of the of the country here in, in, in Canada and wherever you're at. Um, the smaller seeded stuff requires specialty equipment, generally speaking. And it's not as easy as you may think. Uh, if you think you can do some of this stuff, you're going to have to do your research, do your homework, start on a small scale, and go from there. And and then you might be able to have an opportunity. There might be a local dealer, cover crop seed dealer, that would ask you to grow some seed for them to sell. Well, now you know uh, how to do that. So in summary, uh, growing your own cover crop seed is certainly makes sense for some farmers. Um, and, and I'll just say, too, that there is a learning curve. Um, what, one experience I had when I was, first of all, before anyone was even interested in growing radish seed, I, I couldn't convince anybody in the West to do it right away, which I understand. But I, I grew it, and, and I had pallets and pallets and pallets of seed. We knew we had some, um, uh, the moisture was a little high, but that seed started heating up. And the, the feeling, the pit in my stomach of having, again, I forget, it was like a tractor trailer load of seed. We had to physically tear all the pallets apart, put all the bags out, all around two of the sheds I have. You know, it's, it's, and that's why I say, learn all you can before you do this. I've been there, done that. And, uh, it's not like growing corn or soybeans, generally speaking. Uh, so do your homework. And, and try to do it right. So knowing your legal limits, I believe, will provide a solid foundation for growing uh, your own cover crop seed. So um, I just uh, want to say to next week, my topic is going to be visiting the underground magical world of mycorrhizae. And this is uh, certainly a, a cover crop subject one that I have uh, been learning about more and more. And uh, so that's what we can look forward to next week. Uh, now, I'm just going to allow you guys open up this, uh, turn your uh, microphones on here if you can. I'd really like to hear from Andy and Derek if I could. I know you're involved with seed production. Um, looking here who else is on the line. I'm not sure who else is. I see Wayne and Conrad are on there in the uh, seed dealers, and Monty's a seed dealer. Um, you guys have any questions about this, but um, Andy or, or Derek, do you have any follow-up here uh, for me? I see John's on uh, now. John, do you have a question? No, sir. I'm red ahead, Steve. Okay. Okay, any of the rest of you have a, have a question or a comment? Go ahead, Derek. Yeah, um, I'm actually, as we speak right now, I'm getting our combine ready to go combine some radishes. Awesome. Yeah. The one thing, if you are trying to combine radishes, it's it's kind of, a, it's probably the toughest thing I try to combine. And uh, the dryness is key. You want everything absolutely bone dry mm -hmm. or you will have problems. <laughs> so... That, I guess, is some advice that I got from combining these things. So, Well, and I'll just say, Derek, that my experience, I grew radish seed here in my farm for four years, and I would never tackle it again. And the reason I did it, because no one else was at the time, it is difficult, especially in, a, in our more humid environment. The other thing, too, is I know there's, there's a lot of special attachments you can put on the combine to make it work better. Uh, radishes is definitely one I would say leave it up to the professionals. Uh, when I first started growing, it took us three hours to get the first 300 feet. Uh, there was just pods going in the tank, and it was frustrating. And I had 10 acres there looking at me. I was wondering, uh, you know, you're all excited about harvest, and you pull the combine in the field, and you know, it, it, it. We, we had a, 
yeah, it was just it was just one of those things. And then, and then we saved all the settings, came back the next year, went in the field, and it didn't work at all with the exact same setting the previous year because things were just different. So that's oh, my yeah. point. Yeah. I changed um, – well, I do custom combining for uh, different, uh, you know, farmers are in the valley here. And mm-hmm. so I go – all about the part of the valley and and every field is different so you get the you know you set up your combine i have some different sprockets and things you know you kind of after you figure out that are like oh i need to speed this up and because these things were combines were not designed to combine radish seed they were made for wheat corn and soybeans so then it's a whole other beast so yeah you gotta check the combine a lot Mm -hmm. And if you ha- if your combine has a weakness or a weak point, radishes will find it for you. <laughs> yeah, yeah, Conrad, you have a question. Yeah, I do. Thanks, Steve. Um, I've definitely heard some some nightmare experiences um, from folks that have bought seed that was produced locally, mm-hmm. um, and and one of the the things that I've heard is problems with weed seeds. Mm-hmm. You know, farmer has uh, you know a seed bank of you know whatever weed might be common in that area mm-hmm. and all of a sudden they're growing cover crop seeds and it looks pretty good but there's some weed seeds that end up getting combined mm-hmm. how do you if you're growing your own seed how do you protect against that weed seed getting into the final product well that comes back to the grower to begin with i mean obviously weeds are always a challenge in any crop just it's just kind of reality but uh did they, did they, were they able to keep them out to begin with? And then some weeds, weed seeds are not difficult to clean out. Um, especially a small seeded weed in a large seeded cover crop. Uh, it's, it's not hard to clean them out. Uh, and, and again, it comes back to the cleaner too. Because I've heard of people cleaning three to four times just to get things at the, at a point of acceptability. So it comes back to the farmer, how they, how they grow the crop, how they harvest the crop, the cleaner, how well and good of a job they do. And this is why it's important to know where your seed comes from. And, um, I mean, I've, I've heard of, I've heard all kinds of stories like that. And that this is kind of the blessing and the curse of, of buying seed from, I'll say, your neighbors or whatever. Some of them are pretty good at it. But some of them really don't understand that growing cover crop for seed is different requirements than shelling corn and dumping it off at the local grain elevator, where sometimes all they care about is the moisture. And just so you're within, you know, tolerances, it's not hard to shell corn, you know. And it's just a different animal here with cover crop seeds. So it comes down to, I think, the integrity of uh, the whole the whole product chain from the grower, the seed cleaner. And then, uh, obviously, the seed seller. And sometimes that can be all the same person. Um, so to, to your point, it's, it's about that relationship. And, and, I mean, I know for me, I, when I get seed from other sources, I instantly open up the first bag. I just want to see it. Give me a visual. And when I'm pouring in seed, I'm watching. I'm looking at it. It's just what I do because this is part of what I do. And uh, I think – that it's uh, it, it behooves us to to look closely into that. So is Derek Axton from Saskatchewan or Andy? Are you guys still on? I really would like to hear a little perspective. I know that you grow some cover crop seeds. If you can get on, it'd be awesome. Um, other questions from anybody? Is there anything, Monty, I could talk about? I know you're in, in Montana today. I see Derek's up here. Derek, what what any comments from from what I shared? No, you're you're right on. I mean, as far as you know, the combining thing. But I guess for us and why this was a natural for us is because we were growing a lot of these different crops, especially crops anyway. Mm-hmm. So it was an easy transition to start mm-hmm. growing, you know, things like fabas and mm-hmm. you know and chickpeas. We were growing those crops. And, well, mm-hmm. fabas actually that's not true. We weren't growing that one until we had demand for it. But mm-hmm. chickpeas, flax, mustards, mm-hmm. those were things we were growing anyway. Mm-hmm. You know, so a lot of these, it was just a matter of us getting a cleaner in, you know, that we have now and, and being able to, to clean it to spec. So mm-hmm. that, that's why it works so well for us, you know, and then yeah. the contacts, the guys that we've met, you know, uh, through our travels, through the, yeah. this whole soil health movement yeah. is, yeah. it's just been a natural fit and it's been working pretty well. 
Well, I think knowing what I know about you, Derek, uh, and there's two Derek's on the line here, but uh, it's just, it's funny that you're both seed growers, one from Saskatchewan and one from Worthian. Uh, but uh, Derek from Saskatchewan, just knowing you, I think you're really primed because, uh, well, both of you guys are, you know, in all fairness, because you you're you're in this you're in this whole health movement, like you said. So you're understanding the need for cover crops, and you happen to be in an area that's well suited for growing cover crops. And um, so, yeah. Um, so excellent, Andy. Are you still on? Uh, yeah, Andy. What? Any thoughts or comments or questions? Yeah, Steve. Um, mostly when I'm growing, um, we've actually found that the cover crop market for more bulk seed is going into Manitoba, and then I think it makes a hard right turn and goes south most of the time. But uh-huh. um, we're selling lots of our stuff uncleaned just as bulk commodity, and it's going into a couple of cleaners in Manitoba mm-hmm. where it's getting cleaned. And this is stuff like we've sold cereal, cereal rye before, mm-hmm. and... Uh, Lots of spring triticale. Mm-hmm. Every time I talk to one of them, he asks me if I have winter triticale. So this year, finally, I'm going to plant some. Okay. But uh, but that's kind of the end that we've been on. I'm other than a couple of local guys that pick up some some rye from me, and uh, one guy wants some Austrian winter peas this year. Mm-hmm. But it's been more into the bulk stuff, mm-hmm. um, just because we're not set up to clean very well. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's kind of the, the easy end of it. The big money's not there, but mm-hmm. um, it seems to work out for us too. Sure. Well, that's great, and, and I just thought of something. Uh, thank you, Andy, for that. I just thought of something here. Uh, just because you plant a cover crop that you really, really like and you think you can grow it in your area doesn't mean it will grow well in your area. And I could just give an example and you know, I'm going to use trade names here because I just I just want to be uh, forthright and everything. So we really like in my area here uh, fridge triticale. Fridge triticale was was bred and raised, I think, in Saskatchewan or Manitoba. You might know about it, uh, Derek. I don't know, uh, but that is that does really good. It's great for forage. It's great for cover crop. We love it. I tried to grow it for seed several years here. And it falls flat on its face. It barely yields 25, 35 bushel per acre, less than half of some other triticales. So it's fantastic as a cover crop, but it's so susceptible to our diseases that we have in the spring, which you guys in Saskatchewan and Manitoba, Alberta, you don't have those diseases like we have. And, you know, I, I know you're jealous of our rainfall, but you know, along with our rainfall, essentially comes diseases. So, the fridge triticale needs to be grown in a dry climate. Uh, so, I just throw that out there. Just because you're excited about a seed that works well in your farm, it may not grow well there to be used as a cover crop. Um, so, just kind of a, a word out there on that. Other questions? Other questions about cover crop seed production? Uh, Steve, this, this is Dan Tower. Yeah, Dan. Uh, yeah, just a, a kind of a general question. You, you've kind of already hit on it, but but again, like here in the Midwest, again with our our mm-hmm. weather, the humidity issues. Mm-hmm. Uh, let's just as an example that I know nothing about. Mm-hmm. Okay, uh, we got two guys that are playing with black oak. Oh yeah. If you're wanting to grow black oats mm-hmm. for cover crops, mm-hmm. is is that a what's what's the the biggest challenge of doing that here in the Midwest? Well, I'll use almost a similar example. I am growing black oats, and that's actually what's on that picture there. There's a few peas in that. What you see up, and that's just right out of the combine. There was a few weeds in there. You can see that's a, that's that's right out of the combine. Now we cleaned that up really good. Uh, that being said, uh, there's different varieties of black oats now, and I'm I'm struggling to grow this black oats here because it's susceptible. We found out susceptible to a disease called yellow barley dwarf virus, and also rust. Uh, and uh, the, the 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 virus is transmitted by insects, and I I never heard of it before. I never heard of that disease, but this. 
but this this variety is very susceptible to it. Um, the other, on the other hand, the rust is primarily associated with uh, higher humidity and so forth. So <clears throat> I am struggling a little bit to get good yields. Plus, the crop doesn't stand very good for harvest. So uh, to your point, Dan. That's why we say start out small. I'm not saying you can't grow black oats in the Midwest, but if I had a choice, I'd rather have the Derricks grow it or, or Andy um, if they can grow them uh, in their area because they're drier. Right. And they can, the, right. the other thing is they can uh, even, they can swath it if they have to. There's, there, there, we, we can't swath because we might get a thunderstorm three days in a row and that's not good in a swath. So they can cut it. You can actually cut it and windrow it two, three weeks before, the seeds are mature, so I just I'm just throw a caution out there, and and I'll just say too with even cereal rye, guys tend to plant it too thick, and it goes down on them, and then they lose they lose a lot of potential when it when it lodges on them. So I think proceed with caution is the answer to your question. Any other questions? Okay, I'm just going to, uh, we'll just move on here to opening up to any questions at all that you want to uh, ask. Any cover crop questions, I'll hang around here for as long as there are any, if there are any. Um, so, uh, any questions at all about anything with cover crops? Steve, I got one quick comment. Um, just if you're, do one you're doing next week on mycorrhizae, my wife, Tannis, um, trained with Wendy Tyree. Oh, really? Has been looking. Yeah, she's got a bio background. And oh, cool. So, yeah, and 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 anyway, so a year ago we went down to um, to David Branch, mm -hmm. or I guess a year to bit anyway, mm -hmm. to, to to take the training. And mm -hmm. so we've got a bunch of good photos. We oh, yeah? pulled all the covers from our plots, and then she looked at to see which ones are getting better colonization. You know. Mm -hmm. So we can kind of gauge that going forward, and it's cool. been, it's been interesting which ones are colonizing well and which ones aren't. But if you want any photos or anything, we've got some I could send you. Well, I would appreciate that. Is there any chance? Uh, is this more your wife's passion or yours or both or what? Maybe if you could help me in the call, I'd be, I would appreciate that. If it suits yeah, you next well, week. Well, yeah, I can see if you can. <laughs> yeah, she, she trained with uh, with Elaine Ingham. Uh -huh. Done the whole soil thing and then she did this thing with Wendy and yeah well it's th those are the two things that have really changed well now farm, I'm you know? now I'm gonna feel intimidated <laughs> I, I don't I don't feel it's like my specialty but then again I do I have done mycorrhizal research here at my farm 15 20 years ago so I do have some knowledge of it I understand how it works everything but I would appreciate any pictures if you could send it to me that would be awesome um yeah and some are really, really good, and some we didn't see much, you know. And that's planted in a in a mix, so obviously some are just, and that's you know here in southern Saskatchewan, yeah. we know it's different everywhere. Yeah. Yep. So I, I gotta I gotta ask a question. Uh, when you met your uh, uh, wife to be, uh, did you, did you uh, did was she already uh, very knowledgeable in soil biology, and and that made the the relationship. Uh, <laughs> Uh, Symbiotic. Uh, up a little quicker. <laughs> well, this is a long story, but no, we grew up together and we got married after after university and college. And she just happened to have a bio, actually an education degree with a biology major. Cool. So, okay. well, that's really coming in handy now, especially with you know what you're where you're headed and and helping to understand all that. Because I I think this whole mycorrhizal thing is the future and understanding it. And I know there's all kinds of bugs in a jug out there and, you know, there's a percentage of them are snake oil and there's a percentage of them that will work in one field, not another field, but sifting all that out. And then I say, put that in the context of cover cropping. Do we really need many bugs in the jug or do we need them to kick things off? All these questions I think are out there, but I think it's, that is not going away. And I think as part of the soil health and cover crop movement, uh, that's why I wanted to cover it because uh, I think that's that's a it's 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 really deserves some more some more attention. Yeah, that's that's what we're seeing. I mean, I was very curious whether or not we were seeing colonization, and once we looked at all of ours, I think there were sixteen different plants, really? and we have colonization to some degree in in all of them. Some are better than others, but yeah. and we know we don't have to go 
five mycorrhizal fungi yep. in the jug. And now talking with Wendy, we realize that most of those ones are ones we probably don't want to buy anyway mm. because, you know, the, for whatever reason, they've only been selected because they commercialize well, right? They, ah. they can multiply them and ship them and put them in bags and send them to you, and yeah. that's why they're using those varieties. Right. Those, uh, yeah, well, that's, but, boy, we could start the topic right now, it sounds. <laughs> Oh, that's that's great. Well, yeah, I might I might be connecting with you there, Derek, a little bit on that. I would I would appreciate a little I would appreciate a little help on it. Um, so I uh, thank you for bringing that up. Sure. Uh, Steve, Steve, yeah. I'd be uh, if anybody has any feedback, I'm getting ready to go out and take a look at some of the interceding plots and uh, uh, I visited one yesterday mm-hmm. in Central Illinois that mm-hmm. looked looked pretty good. Mm-hmm. Uh, but uh, I'm just curious. Uh, again, I'm trying to get a handle on this uh, high population corn, tall corn, mm-hmm. uh, where we've on occasion lost the stand in August. And just I'm just curious any any feedback from anybody that's on the call in regards to interceding. Uh, uh, especially with high population corn. Well, I know Dan. We talked yesterday, and you had said it, it's looking pretty promising with what you saw. And then, just to clarify for everybody, this is northern Iowa, close to I eighty. Which it's it's kind of common agreement that I eighty and north is where interseeding is most consistent. But um, oh, oh, Steve. Some some of us <laughs> would say it may be I seventy. Okay, I'll give you that. That's fine. Um, but anyone else, like, I know Cody, you're from kind of that area. Is there, are you, are you working with any interceding at all? Um, or anyone else? Of course, Lauren, I see is on here. Lauren, you, I would, would like to hear from you. What's, what's going on? As I told Dan this morning, I think we're on the best interseed we've ever had. Oh, good. I mean, the, t- the top, we must have hit the timing perfect this year. Mm-hmm. But the, the biggest thing I see is Mother Nature threw us the curveball. We got short corn. Mm. Mm-hmm. And that's um, helping you now because there's there's enough sunlight maybe getting in there to keep it keep it surviving. Oh, it's you know I, I, I can see where Dan's coming with the high population, but you know, we did back here and down this year because it you know, on some of the data where we're analyzing it showed the thirty eights and the thirty sixes are barely paying their own way. So mm-hmm. it was a sell to you know, I think our high this year is thirty four. Mm-hmm. And uh, like I said, then Mother Nature threw the curveball. We got short corn with the you know the slow growing season, mm-hmm. and I, I posted a bunch of pictures up on Twitter the other day. I'm not afraid to take them up against anybody's right now. <laughs> good, good. Anybody else? Well, well, hopefully, um, I'll be downloading the the light meters measuring the ambient light. And uh, just the last couple of weeks ago when I was out looking at the plots, uh, uh, there was definitely a difference between the upright leaf had a lot more light coming through okay. than the horizontal leaf. Okay. Uh, uh, you go ahead. Bob, Bob Recker is going to have a virtual field day. I think it's September 14th. There's going to be a lot of the stuff for my cover crops on there. I'll give you a heads up on that already. Okay. Okay. We good? Uh, Lauren, do you have light meters in any of your stuff? No, I was just going to ask, Dan, can, is that something we can get through NRCS, boys? I, I've seen the sensor, but uh, also, are you doing anything with moisture sensors? Uh, moisture sensors, no, um, but the ones that I have are a, a hobo. Uh, I'll, I'll send you the info on it, but it measures temperature and ambient light. And 50 bucks a pop. Uh, and I think it's actually made for, to put it in water. They're waterproof. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's, to measure, I think it's for algae growth in the water. So I, I, you know, I, I played with it for two days in the shade and without the shade to see if it was, you know, how responsive it was. Mm-hmm. You program it, you can go anywhere from 
take readings every one minute to, to one a day or anything in between. And so I'll know a lot more when when I download them and, and see what kind of data that we got. And because uh, one of the things I was curious about was just, you know, is like last year, it seemed like we had more cloudy days than normal. Mm-hmm. And is is that a, you know, or if we're skating right close to the edge, mm-hmm. is, is that a factor? Uh, <clears throat> and that came home when uh, it was, uh, oh, I found out that uh, uh, one of the fields where I've lost the stand in two years was also an, not too far from an area that had, uh, they built a munitions plant in World War II huh. because of the amount of cloud cover from Lake Michigan. Huh. Uh, so it would, it would, you know, the theory supposedly was that it would, uh, if the Germans were planning to come over and bomb the munition factories, they'd have more cloud cover and harder to uh, huh. bomb accurately. Interesting. Well, Dan, one other thing. You said you're, te- you're, you're capturing ambient light and you're seeing a difference between upright, upright and horizontal. You also mentioned you're recording temperature. I wonder if that translates into higher temperatures and how the interaction of that may or may not be, because I, I know more light's going to help the cover crop, but uh, that'll just be interesting to see maybe those graphs side by side or something. Yeah, and and it's one that I mean it wasn't uh, I, I wasn't expecting to see, to see much difference, uh, but then again I don't know maybe yeah. there there is a some difference and uh, but the theory all along is that with the cool season cover crops and this is I eighty I seventy part thing you know too long of a period too high a temperature is the, again could be a result of losing the stand. So, Lauren, do you know, does, does Chris, Chris teach out? He's another one of our members. I know he's having a field day. I think it's uh, this week or next week. Does, does he have, he is monitoring, doesn't he, in his, in his interceded plots? Yeah, he, he's got the same, we're on year two with the same sensors as he's uh-huh. running this year. Okay. And, but ours are buried at two and four inches. We didn't know you could get the light ones. Okay. So, but we do have on them same sensors. We've got deer cameras mm-hmm. that are taking still shots every half hour. I think. Okay, so then, are you gonna are you gonna do a um, you're gonna speed them up and watch just what the cover crop does over a period of, of a couple of weeks? Then I guess right. Be basically. Uh huh. So and, so we'll have to find out if there's a benefit if. If we had the deer out grazing the cover, interceded <laughs> cover crops, and if that helps stimulate root exudates. Oh, well, I know we pulled the we pulled the cards on the camera, switched them out the you know the weekend before my field day, and we we kind of got a little creative with the plot that it's basically the only herbicide on the plot is my inner the ten inch band on the row. And there, there's going to be some interesting data come just from that. The inner seed is actually keeping the weeds down. Uh-huh. And, uh, you know, the, the tilled dirt is solid weeds, or the, inner, you know, the long-term inner seed is uh, clean. So just uh, help us out. I don't think all yeah. of us probably understand exactly what you're doing there, Lauren. I know you explained it when you presented here. So what was the cover crop in that field? Uh, it was interseed last year. Okay. We, we left, had two plots there last year. We had cover interseed and no interseed. Uh-huh. And fr- just from there, we see that uh, the interseed is actually warming the ground up faster in the spring. Okay. And then once we go, it's actually cooler. Uh-huh. But then as soon as the corn broke canopy, we were going hotter again. Uh-huh. So we expanded it this year. We've got four sets of sensors out there and then over the winter through the some of the meetings we we do we figured out that uh we were set up to add a full spectrum of you know the cameras and all that that bob Recker does Uh we've got we've got two cameras on each plot now you know monitoring the plant growth and the cover crop he he wants to see how the cover crop grows Uh in the own 
we're hoping we can track when it when it actually starts uh, going dormant and all that. But <laughs> I got the feeling that the inner seed did so good this year, I don't know if we're going to see that. <laughs> but uh, just, just the weed control is the biggest thing we're seeing. You know, when, when you can see solid weeds versus no with, you know, no herbicide change at all. Mm-hmm. Kind of neat. Yeah. So. Well, I'll just mention here on this on this topic, um, I pushed the envelope a little bit this year and, and interceded at, I'll, I'll call it V2. Essentially, the, the, the corn was actually probably almost, I don't know if there is a V1 or not, but it was just like two leaves you could see. So it was only three inches tall. And, uh, and, it, and, and as, if you know my story this spring, it was in the field that the slugs really decimated. As I came back and I replanted, uh, some, some areas of the field, I interseeded sun hemp and a couple things in there. And when I interseeded the sun hemp, the corn was literally three inches tall. And that was probably a little early because I got sun hemp as tall as the corn right now. So I'm not sure how that's going to turn out. It would probably make great silage. Uh, but that's not the intent here. So, you know, again, it's just, again, it's probably only a half an acre total, but it's just interesting to see. So, yeah, Monty, go ahead. I had a quick question. Yep. I had a quick question for Dan. Would you be willing to share on the Facebook page the those sensors that you're using for your ambient light and surface soil temperature? I'd be really interested to put several of those out in fields or in plots. Uh, yeah, no, no. These are the differences in those. The, I think yeah, there's certain pedigrees, especially the ones from uh, uh, Stein, that have more of that upright leaf structure that works well. Right. Um, and again, it's, uh, I'm, you know, uh, initially the ones I found were $250 a piece, and I got these for 50 so I'm, I'm hoping that they will do what? But but I just I grow a two by two stake in the ground and uh, uh, mounted these sensors on top of those about twelve inches above the ground and so it's it's just recording the temperature at twelve inches and the ambient light at at that height because again I was a little concerned of if the cover crop you know it got if, if I put it on the ground itself. Uh, I was concerned that uh, the the shade from the cover crop would oh yeah yeah afford the expert extra amount of good, light good point and and then and then with rain I was also <laughs> concerned about you know any any uh, soil getting across the sensor and blocking the light. Well, yeah, Dan, if you could, use, it'd be cool to see a picture of it actually in the field. Maybe a link to the the, the specific models that you got. Yes, I would, do, I would do that, and but I will still, <clears throat> uh, mm. I will feel much more uh, yeah. uh, knowledgeable after I download it and, and right. if the data looks yeah. looks solid. Right. So uh, I've been I've been wondering when I can ask the, the question here, and since Stein was brought up, and I know that Stein has been really looking at shorter stature corn in the context of high population. I was thinking the other day, and I, I think some of you guys might have more connections to Stein, um, certainly than I do, because I have none. But would it be worth talking to them about coming up with a with a high yielding short stature corn that would be uh, adaptable to interseeding? You guys think there's merit in, in pursuing that? I, I think there is. The, the biggest thing is uh, if we could just get into their plots. Uh, with cover crops and interseed into the existing plots, it wouldn't be that hard to do. You know, they're they're doing it for yield. I don't think they'll have an interest in doing it for cover crops. But if we can see what they've got coming, mm-hmm. you know, we could do that, Steve, to yeah. do some things. Uh, you know, Calmer, Barry Calmer is my neighbor. Okay. Uh, so I can uh, I can visit with him because he'll have those high density plots there. Mm-hmm. Uh, at his place, and also would know about, you know, over in Southeast Iowa where they do work too. And I mm-hmm. could, you know, I could, I could find out about that. Well, I just thought since he's down the road, 
a couple years now on shorter stature hybrids. I know it's not the high yielding lower populations, but even so, it would be just curious to plant a few of those hybrids, see what they do yield. We'll just say in a 30 inch spacing and the context, context of trying to interseed, uh, because I think the, the biggest factor on survivability of interseeding is light hitting the soil. So that's, that's, uh, yeah, if you could, if you could follow up on that, I think there'd be, I think there could be some merit in that. Um, well, in, in addition to that, um, as my understanding, Stein has done probably more work than any other seed company on the whole concept of planting shorter season soybean variety and, you know, short, especially, you know, a half group earlier, mm-hmm. planting that first, and it will yield just as well as a full season variety. And I think that's that's a that's a big to me a big thing here in the Midwest that, that we need to because uh, that, that that one is I get all kinds of pushback on. Yeah, well, but it's but it's very easy if if it does work and it works on my farm. I feel and I actually use Stein. Um, for my testing for soybeans, uh, not for corn, but for soybeans. And, and they got some pretty good numbers or high uh, varieties, I should say, of shorter two sevens, two eights that, uh, it works well here. That doesn't mean it's going to work in Illinois or Indiana. I'm just saying that, but, but Stein's motivation is not to get cover crop planted earlier or, or do they have an interest in cover crops? I don't know the people. I don't know they do, but it's the concept of the with the earlier season varieties planted first and and yep. you know being very competitive yield yield wise. Yep. Well, Steve, that, uh, yeah, go ahead, money. Have you in broaching a subject? If you if you really want to do these things, mm-hmm. uh, the interseeding, I think it'd be. Interesting to know. Do you know how much it costs to do uh, polymers on the seed? Is that within the realm of possibility where you can polymerize the interplanting cover crops and seed it in one pass? So you got corn on 12-inch rows, and then yeah. you've got a cover crop seed on yeah. alternating 12-inch rows um, with a polymer. So you're planted at one time, and you have a, a delayed emergence by whatever, 14, 21 days. Yeah. Is that within, I mean, if we can polymerize urea yeah. um, as ESN for not much more costs, mm-hmm. uh, I would think you could polymerize seed because your pounds per acre is so much less mm-hmm. and uh, the values is there for doing that, saving a pass. Well, it's something that I've looked into over the years, but not recently. Um, definitely. I, so I don't know the latest technology that's out there for that. In theory, it sounds it sounds easy. Whether or not you could actually get consistent delayed emergence or not, I think is part of the question here. So uh, I don't. All I know is it, Intellicote is mm-hmm. and just about twenty miles north of, of me, mm-hmm. and you know they were trying it for corn, right? And they couldn't get consistency on it. But but here's the thing, Dan, in that concept, in that time, wasn't that to try to plant early, like in March, in cold soils to, to keep the seed surviving? In this case, we're talking about planting, we'll say, a normal time. Uh, so I'm just asking that question. Yeah, and, and I don't know. That's, that's, are, are they still doing it? I, I haven't heard about it lately. No, one panel bought it, but they discontinued it. I see. Oh, they they still use uh, the polymer on seed on the male female plants for delayed pollination. But when when we looked at uh, treating, you know, polymer coating some radish and all that stuff way back when, mm-hmm. biggest they were concerned was the heat treat was messing up the germination. Were they concerned about it, or did they actually test it? That that's what they're concerned. When you know, I was, me and Garth were pursuing that quite a few years ago, and and uh, that was what they kept telling us, you know. But now all all your ryegrass seed, almost you know, the lows and all that is you know clay coat, not everything. 
I think it's a good question, Monty. Um, you know, you got to get the right people that, that are interested in doing it. Sometimes you have the technology there, and they, they don't have an incentive to really, I'll say, correctly give it a shot. Um, it's definitely, definitely something out there that, I guess, I mean, I'm not sure if I'm the driver behind it. It's not, it's not my forte per se, um, but I certainly would support it from an agronomic standpoint in testing it. So, I mean, if you think about it, that's, that's the direction it needs to get to eventually. Yeah. Because, you know, asking farmers to make another pass during that, that time of year is, is, is hard. Well, unless uh, I mean, they're the, the, the people on this phone call, mm-hmm. people on this phone call are going to yeah. do it, right? Okay, but the guy that has, you know, twenty thousand acres yeah. and uh, a crew of employees, uh, it ain't going to happen here. There was you know, so. Um, I think that if there's a way to incorporate that, Steve, mm-hmm. uh, yeah. I think that's where the where we need to be looking for a ten year from now solution. Yeah, uh, Andy, are you on, Andy? Thought Andy, Andy, are you on? Thought you were going to ask the question. Maybe not. Um, well, just to follow up on that, I, I certainly agree, Monty, in what you're saying. But I also would say that uh, these twenty thousand acre guys are they not side dressing, and they could rig up applicators with side dressing to do interseeding. Good luck doing that on twelve inch corn. Oh, okay, gotcha. Well. I would say, do we have to go in 12-inch corn? You know, well, thinking of the whole system follow, here. Yeah. yeah. Uh, it's all about light interception, you know, yeah. and uh, that's the other thing is anytime we let light go to the floor, we're giving up the sure. light acquisition in the cash crop. So, right. uh, you know, what is that trade-off? Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I can, you can grow great interseeded cover crops if you, if you grow wider rows and uh, mm-hmm. no poorer yields, but right. we're going to be in the 300, 350 range. Yeah. yeah. Um, I don't know. I mean, yep. my neighbor had great success, but he has 160, 180 bushel corn. Okay. So, <laughs> uh, when you're yeah. in the 240, 280 range, yeah. uh, we can't get it to work. Yeah. 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 Okay. Um, we've been on this call for a long time. We have an awesome conversation here. Is there one more burning question that anybody has? Speak up quick. Hey, thanks again for the good uh, conversation here. It's always a pleasure and an honor. And um, we'll see you over in Facebook and see you uh, next week. We'll talk about mycorrhizae. And in the meantime, have a great week. All right. Thanks, Steve. Yep. Thanks, Steve. Yeah, thank you.